time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. Lots of times over my career, I've worked with people who were caught in the grip of anxiety. Anxiety was lurking for them and catching them off guard wherever they were in life. Sometimes it would catch them in the morning. Sometimes it would catch them at night. Sometimes it caught them all through the day. When I was a chaplain, I was often called to the emergency room when somebody came in thinking they were having a heart attack. And in reality, they were just gripped by anxiety to the point that they were having an anxiety attack, a panic attack. Medically, there wasn't a whole lot they could do for them other than to give them a a paper bag to breathe into. And so they would have me come in to sit with them so that they could tend to others who were having problems. And so I watched many of these panic attacks and I recognized that that panic attack was really an overgrowth of the anxiety that I saw lots of times in my office. You see, anxiety is really an overshooting of the goal of our minds. So let's wake back a little bit, walk back a little bit to an earlier time, your ancient ancestors. You see, your brain is wired for fear because of the environment your ancient ancestors lived in. They were living in a place where survival was only going to happen if they were super vigilant, looking for every shadow that might have a foe behind it, looking at every danger that might befall them and staying away from it. The people who had less of that wiring, the people who were a little more courageous or bold, probably didn't propagate for very long. Their genes were slowly cut out of the gene pool because they kept putting themselves at risk. Your genetic material is here because your ancestors were more careful than the others. They won the race to stay around long enough to pass on their genes. And so over time, natural selection brings us more and more response to fear, more and more fearfulness in our lives because that kept us alive until fairly recently. Now we live in a culture where there's not a danger around every shadow, there might still be dangers lurking around us, and there might be times when we need to be extra careful. But lots of times we are running on fears that are based on things that are living in our imagination more than living around us. We're caught by an overshooting of that fear goal so that we are hyper vigilant and watching out for fears where they might not exist. Generally, most of us go to offices or to work that's pretty safe especially compared to what it would have been like on the savanna or in the forest or wherever our ancestors came from. So we walk into situations that are already at a far less mortal danger to us, and yet we respond to them as if they are putting us at risk. Many of us experience that fear on a regular basis. Now, let me once again say there are times when the real world is still risky, just far less often than our ancestors. And yet, we are living in a brain that was built in a very dangerous time that we carry with us into a much safer time. And so we have this anxious response. Think of anxiety as fear multiplied. 
And that fear multiplied runs rampant in us, ramping up our psychological and our physiological system. Psychologically, you might know this anxiety by the racing thoughts that it creates. You know, your, your brain just can't stop. If you've ever awakened to thoughts running through your head about all the horrible things that might happen in your life, or maybe when you're trying to go to sleep and that part of your brain takes over and starts reminding you of all the things that have to be done and all the things that are at risk and all the things that are in your world that are racing around in you, you can get wrapped up in the racing thoughts. The same thing happens if something occurs. Maybe you go to work and Suddenly you're called in to the boss's office and before you can get to the office, your brain is already racing through all the possible scenarios of why you're being called in and how you need to respond and what's going to happen now and how your life is going to be ruined when you lose your job and all the other things that pop through our mind on a regular basis. And because of those racing thoughts, it creates fearful feelings within us. That fear where our whole body begins to kind of vibrate on this new feeling of fear happens and then we feel overwhelmed. And sometimes that feeling of overwhelm leads us to kind of shut down, psychologically to shut down, not to be able to hear what's happened. Have you ever had one of those meetings maybe with a boss or somebody else who has some power or control over you and once that fear has gotten you, you can't hear what's going on there because of how much your brain is running through the racing thoughts, the fearful feelings, and the overwhelm. And then there's that sense of dread that often flows from anxiety where you're just sure that something's going to happen. See, our brain has this one little cool trick that it does where it keeps looking for all the possible things that could go wrong. And so it creates scenario after scenario after scenario of all the bad things that might come our way. And eventually, guess what? It's right about something. And when it's right, it's able to say, see, I told you so. I knew this was going to happen. Forgetting all of the other places, all of the other things where it didn't happen, all the other predictions you had that never came true, all the fears that ended up just being imaginary. But because they every now and then happen, we can walk around with a sense of dread going, I knew bad things were going to happen. Physically, there is also a response in our body. When we are feeling the anxiety, our body is getting pumped full of of adrenaline and other uh, hormones that are getting our body in a heightened state ready for whatever might come our way. And because of that, we tend to have some physiological responses. For instance, lots of people, when they have anxiety, sweat profusely. Not because it's hot outside, in fact, it could be freezing cold, but their body is in a state that it's sweating to make sure it's cool enough. If a fight comes along, they'll be ready. And so the sweating is a way of the body preparing for a confrontation. Sometimes we have a get-away sensation in our body. I talked about it before, but when I was a a young teen, uh, I had the job of locking up our church. And one of the things that was true about locking up the church is I had to walk the halls of this darkened church in the evening. Had to check the doors, turn off the lights, make sure everything was locked. And I remember as I would walk through, I'd hear the noises, the clanking of the pipes and the swaying of the building and I remember walking through and feeling in my feet that my feet just wanted me to desperately run to the end of the hall. 
And I had to remind my feet that I was okay. I had to remind myself that I didn't need to run because I had this getaway sensation that was flowing through my body. The adrenaline was getting me to feel like I needed to flee. Sometimes we feel a little bit shaky. That's what happens when adrenaline hits us. It makes us feel a little shaky inside, and sometimes we even have a little tremor in us, and that's part of that fear of the confrontation. Our mouth might go dry. Sometimes we have stomach problems. And when we have an attack, when enough anxiety overflows that it comes into a feedback loop, we have that attack, our heart might race. It might feel like our heart's pounding out of our chest, and we end up hyperventilating, breathing so much oxygen in that our body is even in a heightened state, and our fingers begin to tingle, and our feet begin to tingle, and our arms might even begin to tingle, and our lips might become uh, tingly. And all of that is a symptomology of that anxiety attack. When it's just anxiety, just the level of anxiety, it might be just the sweating, the getaway, the shaky feeling, dry mouth, some stomach problems. But when it goes overboard, that's when we have that heart racing. So anxiety is asking the what if. And the problem is the anxiety creates loops. Anxiety over anxiety. One time I was talking with somebody who had an anxiety attack and from then on had anxiety about the fact that the person might have an anxiety attack. No longer were they able to be anxious about what had originally triggered the anxiety, but they were anxious about the anxiety. And that's the feedback loop I'm talking about. Let's say that something tough happens at work and you had a bad reaction to it and then you have a hard time. Imagine going back to work because you're afraid you're going to have that same reaction. And so you get anxious about the possibility of being anxious. In fact, a lot of anxiety as it builds is exactly that. Sometimes people dread getting on the plane because they know they're going to be anxious when they get on the plane. And so it's not about the flight that they're anxious about at that point. They're once removed. They're anxious about the anxiety about the flight or people who are anxious about driving. They get anxious about even thinking about a trip because they know they're going to be anxious on that trip, and therefore they become anxious about the anxiety. When that feedback loop starts looping through, it builds more and more anxiety. In fact, whatever it was that originally created the anxiety is no longer present. It's the anxiety of the anxiety that's running the show. Years ago, I had uh, some sessions with a person who came to me because she had had an anxiety attack that came about as a result of a meeting she had before that. The boss had asked her to lunch. So they went to lunch, and at lunch, she got a little choked on some food. And she got so anxious about that choking that she began to think about it every time she had to be eating with anybody at work to the point that she began to be anxious about even thinking about being at work at a mealtime to the point that she even got anxious about going to work that might lead to a time where she might be at work when she might have to eat that might make her anxious because something might happen and you can see the loop that was building with her and around and around it went until she was completely immobilized. She found it hard to even get to work without feeling panicky without feeling anxiety. That's the loop we're talking about. She was now multiple steps away from what originally caused it. In fact, it took us a while to tease it back to get to what had precipitated the event. 
And I asked her, did anything happen bad in that? I mean, did your boss say, I can't believe you got choked? She said, no, no, my boss was very understanding about it. I said, obviously you didn't die from that, so you survived it. She said, yes, yes. And I said, my guess is you could do some things if you really wanted to avoid that, like eat soup instead of eating something that would be chewy. And she said, yeah, I I guess I could. And we began to, to unravel the loops of anxiety, all based on one moment in time that created a fearful response that looped and looped and looped. If you're feeling anxiety, sometimes it's useful to notice that loop. Sometimes it's better off just going ahead and trying to figure out how to do some first aid and then some long-term care on that. So let's talk a little bit about first aid when you're dealing with anxiety, when you're attacking anxiety, trying to get it under control. The first thing to understand is the importance of breathing. Breathing is the accelerator and the brake for your body. When you are getting ready for a fight, you start breathing rather rapidly to make sure you have the oxygen coming into your body. Sometimes when people are really anxious, they even hold their breath. But in many ways, our fear response gets us into breathing patterns that exacerbate the fear. You can breathe through two places in your body, your chest or your abdomen. Your chest is a little tough to breathe through because it's got those ribs around it that protect all of those organs at the top of your chest. So your ribs kind of make it tough to expand your chest very, very far. Your abdomen, on the other hand, can go in and out a pretty good amount, which is how we're designed to breathe. If you put a baby down, you'll notice that the baby breathes through its belly. If you watch a baby who's sleeping, you'll notice that what moves is the belly button as it goes up and down as the baby is calmly breathing in and out. If you've ever had yoga or tried to learn to play a musical instrument that required some breath or sing a song in a class, you'll notice that they teach you to breathe from your diaphragm deep in your belly. Now, that's the correct way that we're designed to breathe. But when we're threatened, our body does something to protect us. It tightens up our stomach, our diaphragm, to protect the organs that are in that area, which creates a feedback loop to our brain. If we have a diaphragm that's being held tensely, it tells our brain that it's trying to protect itself from attack. And so our brain decides to step on the accelerator of anxiety. And when we step on the accelerator of anxiety, our brain starts looking for all the threats possible in the area to make sure that it's dealing with what needs to happen. And here's the problem. The part of your brain that is deep within you, the deepest part of your brain, is what's responsible for that anxiety response. It doesn't understand words. And so it's looking for signs, using your auditory and your uh, vision to bring in and, and your smell to bring in early signs of attack, early signs of threat. They're deeply wired. And so when your, your stomach is clenched tight, your brain starts looking for all those other threats, starts thinking through all the possibilities and scenarios that could go wrong. And suddenly you find yourself in an anxious state. So breathing is an accelerator because when you tighten your diaphragm, you start breathing through your chest. Breathing through your chest tells your brain there's a problem. But breathing can be a break 
It can break the whole anxiety system simply by moving to a calming place. There's the idea of box breathing that comes to us from the special forces. SEALs practice the belly breathing going on a box breathing system in order to calm themselves down in stressful situations. My guess is that if they can use it in times when there really is truly a threat around them, you and I can use it in regular life with pretty good success. So think of a box. There are four sides to a box. And I want you to think of starting on one lower corner. And as you take a big breath in from your, your, from your diaphragm, you're going to use a three count. The box breathing that the special forces use is a four count, but most of us don't have quite the same level of fitness. And so we use a three count. So you would breathe in three, and that's going up the side of the box. And then you would hold your breath for a count of three across the top. And then you would let out your breath on a count of three down the other side of the box and hold the breath out for a count of three. And so you're breathing in one, two, three, holding your breath, one, two, three, exhaling, one, two, three, holding your breath out, one, two, three, inhaling, one, two, three, holding, one, two, three. So you've got a three count of inhale, three count of holding your breath while it's all in, exhaling to three, holding that exhale breath for three, and around the box you go. Some people find that when they are holding their breath on the exhale, that a count of two is about all they can manage, and that's okay. It comes close enough to a square. When you practice that, in the middle of having anxiety upon you, you're telling your brain that everything's okay. But you've got to isolate the place to breathe from. So if you put your hand on your diaphragm right over your belly button and the other in the middle of your chest right over your breastbone, you want to practice breathing so that the, only the hand on your belly button moves. Some people find that in order to isolate that, because we have been raised in our culture to hold our gut in, to stand up straight and hold our gut in, so we haven't learned to do, do that diaphragmatic breathing. So some people find that they have to lie down on the ground and put a hand on each of those places. Lying down helps you see which one is, is working. So when you lie down, you put a hand on your belly button, hand on your breastbone, and practice breathing to find that diaphragm so that only the hand on your belly button is moving. Now, I will tell you up front that it's much better to practice that before you need it than trying to figure it out when you need it because it's likely that when you're at the office and you're feeling that anxiety, nobody's going to understand when you lie down in the middle of the office to figure out where your diaphragm is. So figure that out ahead of time. Lie down on your bed, sofa, floor, Figure out where that is and recognize that you can now do that breathing, whether you're sitting up, standing up, lying down, wherever you are, you can breathe through your belly button, breathe through your diaphragm and follow that box breathing. The other thing that's helpful when you're in the middle of some of that panic is to have a change of scenery. Let's say you're somewhere and it's so overwhelming to be there, you decide that you need to step outside or step inside to get away from it. Sometimes it's just a matter of closing your eyes and picturing something more peaceful, something that brings you peace. For me, it's the beach, the ocean, being beside the ocean. And I can imagine that in my mind's eye and have a change of scenario, have a change of pace that pulls me away from that uh, immediate situation. 
Now, the thing that you'll notice is that what you don't want to do is refuse, is to avoid the situation that's creating the anxiety. You need to refuse to avoid all of that. You might have to take a step back. But imagine if the way that everybody deals with something making them anxious is they avoid it. Imagine what we begin to avoid. Going to work, difficult conversations, driving in the car if that creates fear, taking a flight in an airplane. We start giving so much over to what makes us anxious that our, our uh, world begins to close in on us. So we can't let that happen. You see, when we show whatever it is in our mind that something that's anx- making us anxious should make us anxious, it doubles down on that. So let's say that you decide not to go to work because you're anxious about something that might happen at work. You just told that part of your brain that going to work is dangerous enough that you're going to avoid it. So then the next day, it reminds you of that and doubles down on that to make sure that you really understand how dangerous that is by making you more anxious. We build in a habit of anxiety when we avoid what made us anxious. Now, we might need to take a step back. Maybe we go to an exercise class and we find ourselves on the front row and that's too anxiety provoking because we've never been, been there before. And so we back up a few rows. We haven't avoided the class, but we found a way to moderate that level. Or maybe you have something difficult that you need to say to a spouse and you realize that you just can't do it in person. So you write a letter and ask them to read it while you sit beside them. That's one step back from the anxiety. We find ways of stepping just a little bit away from it, not out of the room, not out of the building, but just a little step away so that we can practice our breathing, imagine ourselves at a calm place, and move forward. Now, long-term, one of the things that we need to watch for is the fact that we tend to catastrophize issues. And when we find ourselves taking it to the worst-case scenario, we find ourselves exacerbating that anxiety. One of the things that I've adopted in my own life is looking at things from a will-see place. Years ago when I was sick, I had lots of people telling me what would happen or what could happen to me because of my illness. And I adopted the stance of saying, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I can't deal with what might happen out there. I need to deal with where I am right now. So we'll see. And that began to be my way of backing off from catastrophizing. And, and remember that we're, we always catastrophize when we're looking at the worst case scenario of something that hasn't happened yet, when we're looking out there. It is absolutely true that I could have been disabled. It is absolutely true that I could have suffered lots of physical ailments related to this. It's absolutely true it could have killed me. But it did me no good to think about that and process that as if it were likely to happen when it hadn't happened yet. I decided I could face those pieces as they came, not ahead of time. In fact, I don't find much that happens good when we play it out ahead of time. So remember to watch yourself catastrophizing. The other thing is that I find myself uh, with two good tools in my tool belt long term. One is to find some activity every day. When our body is in motion, it burns off some of the adrenaline. Our body is not designed to be under a constant load of stress that we often live in in our culture. It's part of the reason exercise is so good for us psychologically. 
it gives us a chance to burn off some of that adrenaline that builds up. So I put activities into two different categories. I put uh, in one category are the things that are just me being active, maybe going for a run, and things that are more repetitive, going for a run, going for a paddle, things like that. Now, when I'm doing those things, I can certainly think. And many times I think about what I'm working on and, and creating, writing about while I'm doing those repetitive exercises, when I'm walking in the morning, for instance. So those aren't really necessarily a relief from the thought process, but it gives me a chance to, to kind of problem solve those. Then I have another group of activities that are distracting and engaging activities. When I scuba dive, I realize that from the moment I slip into the water until the moment I come up, I have no room to think about anything else going on in my life. It's kind of like a mini vacation. I go down and I come up, and in between, I haven't been able to think about all the problems that might await me on the surface because I need to be focused on what's going on around me. Recently, I found the same to be true with jiu-jitsu. I have to keep my mind on what's going on. If I'm learning in a class... I have to be focused on what the instructors are talking about so that I can work on that particular move. If I'm sparring with somebody, rolling with somebody, I have to be thinking about what's going on and what they're trying to do to get around me so that I can only focus on that event. In other words, an immersive event, something that's so engaging and distracting that I can't think about the rest of life, gives me a mini vacation. It breaks the loop, breaks the spiral. Some people find that when they go to a movie or read a book. Some people find that those events don't do enough. But we all have some place that we can find that's engaging and distracting enough that it breaks the anxiety loop and we get a break from it. That break helps us get to a new state. So long term, the three pieces that I want to suggest is one, watching for catastrophizing thinking to make sure you don't fall prey to that. Two is to find something that keeps you active on a very regular basis, if not daily, to make sure that you're able to allow your body to process that extra adrenaline that we all carry around with us. And three is to find activities that are so engaging and distracting that while you're there, you're immersed in it and you don't have to be in that, that anxiety loop. I hope this has been helpful for you in learning how to attack your anxiety. I have other resources on my Thrivology uh, website uh, that you can learn. Uh, if you go to thrivologypodcast.com and do a search for anxiety or depression, you're going to find some other episodes that will talk about how you can attack them both physically and mentally and emotionally to get to a better place in life. I also have a number of books that might help you. Uh, one is my book, uh, The Thrive Principles, 15 Strategies for Building Your Thriving Life. You can find that at thethriveprinciples.com, thethriveprinciples.com. I also have a book about how we get stuck because we violate these laws that are around us. And part of this is dealing with that anxiety in better ways. And so you can find that at theimmutablelaws.com, theimmutablelawsofliving.com. I'm sorry, theimmutablelawsofliving.com. That book is The Immutable laws of living. And my new book is how to get rid of that old stuff. You know, when you're stuck thinking about those old hurts and pains, how to forgive them and how to move beyond them. That's at theforgiveprocess.com, theforgiveprocess.com. That book is called The Forgive Process. If you want to find links to all of those books and my blog and all the other pieces that I put out there, 
You can find that by going to my website, leebalkum.com, L-E-E-B-A-U-C-O-M.com, leebalkum.com. This is Lee Balkum wishing you the best as you build your thriving life. listening to the Thrivology podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at thrivology.com or at thrivologymagazine.com. Remember that Thrivology is spelled T H R I V E O L O G Y. It's your life. Time to live it. Uh-huh.